Well, good morning. Uh, this being a Family Life Sunday, I want to start things off a little bit differently. So we're actually going to start with a little children's sermon. So if you are a kid here today, I want to invite you to come forward. And you can sit here on the ground or you can sit in the front row, whichever you'd like to. So even on the steps if you want to, as long as you can see me, I'm okay with that. Just remember, if you're on the steps, your parents can see if you're misbehaving more. Yeah, face this way, though. I'm behind you. All right, so I have been working on something, boys and girls. Wow, you all chose the steps. Okay. I've been working on something. I've been working on my sculpting ability. So I've been working on, like, molding stuff to make it look like something else, all right? So I need a volunteer. Can I get a volunteer? Right here. Come on up here. All right. I want you to stand stand right here for me, okay? All right. Let's see. All right. Take uh, your right hand, put it on your hip like that. Take your left hand, hold it out like this. I want you to uh, make a real, like, pensive face. You know what the word pensive means? No? That's all right. Me neither. Um, no, you're, like, a really, you're thinking really hard. All right? All right? Okay. Now, I'm going to grab my sculpting equipment here, Play-Doh, like every good sculptor, and uh, I'm going to start sculpting. You boys, girls, think I can, think I can do this? No. No? Ugh, no confidence. No. You know what? It's missing something. Hold on. You need a prop. Every good sculpture needs a prop. There we go. All right. All right. Let's see. Let's see. All right. I'm almost done here. Do you think I can do it? Do you think I can do it? Do you believe in me? You're my favorite. All right. Let's see. Let's see. And done. All right. You ready to see it? What do you think? Did I do a good job? No. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I was sculpting, the ball. You guys thought I was sculpting him? Oh, no, no, I just needed somebody to hold the ball. Thank you, you can go and have a seat. I, I just needed to have someone hold the ball so I could sculpt the ball. And see, that looks pretty good, right? I am a very good sculptor. I don't need you to tell me it. I can validate myself. Well, today we're going to be talking about when God made humans, all right? We're still talking through creation. We're going to talk about how God made us in his image, just like I made this ball in the image, this dough in the image of this ball. One thing we'll talk about, though, is how sin impacts things. Because some people think that, you know what, because of sin, we're not really made in the image of God anymore. But that's not true. And we're going to talk about how sin doesn't change the fact that we're created in God's image. It just distorts it. It just takes that image. And, you know, does this look just like the ball now? Not as much, but you can see how it kind of, kind of does, right? It's still in the image. It's just different. It's flattened. Or here's another example, all right? Let's say, let's say we've got some water here, all right? This is God. This is us. We are made in the image of God. Well, what happens is sin comes into our life, and it distorts us. Now, is this still liquid? Yeah. But does it look different? Yeah, it's pink. Very good color recognition. It's pink. It changes it. It's still liquid, though. We're still made in the image of God. Sin just kind of changes. It distorts how we look. So we're going to be talking today how that impacts our life. And now, this being a family Sunday, how many of you got coloring sheets when you came in? All right, if you didn't, 
When I send you back to your seats, you can ask your parents. There's some in the foyer. We also have activity sheets, including uh, a word search, um, sermon note sheet, and that kind of thing. And you can ask your parents if you can go to the foyer and get it. But you all can go ahead and have a seat, all right? Now, as we jump into our passage today, I'm going to ask you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we're in a series called The Story of Your Life. And Pastor Kyle started this series a few weeks ago. We're looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And he started a few weeks ago. And last week, he spoke about the first five and a half days of creation and what we can learn about God from that. Well, this week, we're going to look at just the last half of day six in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 31, when God created man. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was morning and there was evening the sixth day. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that it tells us something that scientists have been hypothesizing about for years. But you reveal to us the amazing origin of the world and the amazing origin of our life. God, I pray that as we come and we look at this passage, I pray that you will help our hearts to be open to what it is you have to say. Help us, Lord, to be humble to approach your word today. In your name I pray, amen. So the key part of this passage that we're going to focus on is that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. We see this mentioned in verses 26 and 27. In 26, he says, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Well, the first question we need to ask is, what does that mean? What does that mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, we're created similar to God. God uses two different words to lay out his plan. His image in his likeness. These two words, both in the Hebrew, they refer to something that's similar, but not identical to what it represents. The repetition of two similar words, uh, they're not competing with each other. They're they're synonyms that are, are kind of pushing more that point that we are created in the image of God. So we're made similar to God. Not an exact representation, but similar. But what does that mean? I mean that's, that's, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, obviously, I could have told you that. Does it mean we physically look like God? Like a statue or a painting would? Well, we can confidently say no to that because Jesus tells us himself in John chapter 4 when he's talking to the woman at the well, he tells us that God is spirit. God is not a physical being, but God is spirit. So we're not made to physically reflect God. 
And it's hard to know for certain exactly what it means to be made in the image of God. We're told we're made in God's image, but we're not clearly told what that means. And theologians for, for years have, have been debating, and, and there's different, different stances on what this might mean. But when you look at the differences between us and the rest of creation that was not made in God's image, and you cross-reference those with what we know about God throughout all of Scripture, we can find some plausible aspects that we have that are similar to God. Wayne Grudem, in his book, Systematic Theology, which is a massive book, but a great theological resource, also a great book if you need to like flatten out a poster or something, that's usually one of my go-tos, but got a lot of great resources in it. He lists a few different aspects that we as humans share with God that is different than the rest of creation. The first is a moral aspect. Humans are born with a sense of right or wrong. Now, whether we do right or wrong, that's a completely different story. But you compare that with animals, and you can see they don't have that. Now, you might be like, well, no, no, I have a dog, and my dog knows you do not go on the couch. Anyone here have that rule, firm rule, no dogs on the couch? <laughs> that dog doesn't instinctively know don't go on the couch. That dog has been trained. And when you train an animal, you, you train it using punishment and using reward. They have to be trained to understand that. Humans, we know instinctively there's right and there's wrong. There's also the spiritual aspect. God is spirit, so the fact that we have a spirit should be of no surprise being made in his image. Because of this, we have a spiritual life now on earth, seen in our worship, seen in our prayer, as well as an eternal life, either in heaven or hell. Animals, they don't have the ability to pray and to worship, nor do they have an eternal life. There's the mental aspect as well. Our minds were created to reason, think logically, and learn in a way that's vastly different than animals. We've seen massive advancements over the centuries in technology. We have the ability to communicate with many different languages. We have high levels of creativity, and we have complex emotions. Animals might be smart, and they might not be. It depends on the animal. But you might see elements in animals that show that they are smart, but it's more instincts than the higher level of thinking that we as humans have. There's a clear difference. And then there's the relational aspects. We've been created to be in relationship with others and with God. We have family members that we feel a tight bond with. We have friendships that come and go and some friendships that, that stay forever. We have romantic relationships, devoting ourselves to someone else in marriage. We have children that we love and nurture and care about even when they're fully grown. Animals definitely have relationships as well. You can see that but the complexity falls short of our relationships, and it's different depending on each animal. And in some ways, it's completely opposite. Like, for instance, praying mantises and black widows, yeah, the females eat their mates. So kind of glad that, that that's something we don't have to deal with, not really an ingredient in a healthy marriage. These are just some aspects that Wayne Grudem points to as ways that we, as humans, are like God are made in the image of God. But there's another question that's reasonable to ask as well, and it's what we discussed when the kids were up here. Doesn't the reality of sin nullify this? I mean, sure, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, but like what was mentioned last week, that was pre-Genesis chapter 3. And we live in a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, when sin entered the world. So didn't sin destroy this? Aren't we no longer made in the image of God? 
Yes, sin did change a lot of things. And and, in a few weeks, Pastor Kyle's going to be talking about Genesis 3, and he'll cover that more. But being made in the image of God was not something that was eliminated, nullified by sin. Sin may have distorted us, but it didn't change us. Just like the Plato, we're still in his image. Just like this liquid, we are still liquid. We just don't represent God in the pure way that we used to. Sin has deformed us. The moral, spiritual, mental, and relational aspects that we talked about that make us similar to God are now used in ways that God never intended. A lot of times used in selfish ways, in self-glorification. Sin has taken these things and it's mutated them. But they can still be used, and we know this, they can still be used in a way that glorifies God. Well, you might still be asking, like, all right, well, that sounds good, but how do we really know that? I mean, you're saying, but how do we know it? Well, we actually see in Scripture that for sure we are still created in the image of God. Because God himself said it in Genesis chapter 9. This is after the flood. All right, after the flood, after the the world has gotten so corrupt that God was just like, I'm done with it, I'm going to eliminate all of this, and I'm going to start over. God had seen the depths of sin in the heart of man and how sin had, had corrupted man being made in the image of God. Yet when he says this, he's talking even about sin. He says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. God is very clear here that man post-fall is still made in the image of God. So this reality that God created man in his own image, it, it lays a foundation for us. It's a foundation we have to build on. It's a foundational truth for so many aspects of our life. We see it as foundational in scripture. We see it pop up uh, in, in narratives, in psalms, in commands, in epistles. And we need to see it as foundational for our day-to-day life as well. So I want to look at three particular relationships that this truth is foundation for, foundational for in our lives. And the first is our approach to God. It's foundational in how we approach God. The most obvious relationship this impacts is the one who is speaking in this passage. And although we don't have time to cover it, I want you to notice that the Trinity is involved in this count. Because in, in Genesis 1, 26, it says, then God said, let us make. That plural, us, we're seeing the Trinity is involved. Again, we don't have time to talk about, but even Jesus himself was involved as we see in John chapter 1. When John tells us this, and that's something that we need to remember as we get later on in the sermon. There's a vast number of ways, though, that we should approach God, but let me just give you two today. And and even under these, you could list hundreds more. The first is we approach God by worshiping him. We worship him. All right, so for the boys and girls that are here today, I want you to imagine it's your birthday, okay? All right, wow, you're there quick. Like, is it your birthday soon? No, you just want it to be. It's your birthday, all right? So you've got different, different things that happen on your birthday, all right? Maybe you have, have cake, right? We've got cake. We've got uh, maybe people come over. Maybe we have a little party, uh, play some games. Um, and what am I missing? What's another important ingredient? Presents, that's right, presents. You've got presents too. So let's say you're sitting down. It's your birthday. You have this gift in mind that you've been hinting at all year long, like every, well, probably all week, but it feels like a year to you. Every single day you go to the, that you, you're at the store, you make sure you just nicely and, and loudly say, wow, this would be so cool for me to have right in front of this gift. 
this is what you want. And your mom and dad bring this gift to you and you think, I think I know what it is. And so you open that gift up, right? And there it is. It's exactly the gift that you wanted. And before you tear open that box and and rip it out and start playing with it, what should you do? Not necessarily what do you do, but what should you do? Say thank you. Very good. You say thank you. Well, in the same way, God gave us the gift of life. And the way we say thank you is through worship. David models this for us in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 14, where he says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. What he's saying is you created me. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He gives praise for God is responsible for creating him. Now, the sad truth is we often end up forgetting to worship God for giving us life. We let the worries of this life overtake us. We let the hardships become our focus. We even get to the point where sometimes we might even resent God for giving us life. When these things happen, it's because we are taking the life we were given and we're using it wrong. We were created, even as Brandon just mentioned, as objects of worship, to worship God. But when we let these things overwhelm us and we forget about worshiping God, when we focus too much on the worries of our life, we're at best forgetting to worship God. And we're at worst worshiping ourselves instead. Even in the hardest times, we need to learn to worship God. Then we can be like Job, who lost his fortune, his children, and his health, yet he still worshiped God. Or like Horatio Spafford, who after losing his four daughters in a shipwreck, wrote this in a hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, what's the next line? It is well with my soul. How do we have that perspective? To worship God when everything seems wrong in life. Even at the worst part of our lives, how do we have that perspective to worship God? Well, it helps if we also learn to submit to him, to submit to him. Let me give you a a, a math equation here, all right? Um, So I'm going to put it up here on the screen. Do I have that there? All right, the first one there. Creator, what's that middle thing mean? Anybody? Mathematicians? Greater than. Creator, greater than creation. Creator is greater than creation. God created man. God is the creator, we are the creation. Every creator is greater than his creation. So I want you to imagine this. You work at some sort of retail giant, all right? It might be um, a Walmart or a Target, or, or you can imagine that you made one named after yourself. You're your own Sam Walton, and you've made your own retail giant. Uh, and, and you're in charge of the toy department. That's your job, is to make sure that you have the toys. And you're, you're, you're making sure you're ordering the toys that you need. Well, one day you get a phone call. You pick up that phone call, and it's Doug. Doug from Melissa and Doug. You know, the toy makers, they make all those wooden toys, really high-quality stuff. And he says to you, he's like, hey, you sell our product, and we love that, and we want to give you a choice here. You can keep selling our product and keep things as are, or we want to give you the opportunity. We're willing to come and work for you, and we'll help you completely reinvigorate your toy department. Which one are you going to choose? It's obvious, right? 
you would be like, yeah, come and work for our tour. You're going to make our store so much better because the creator is greater than the creation. A lot of people, they mess up this equation, though, and they try to change it. They may say something like this, creator is equal to creation. Since we're created in the image of God, they're going to claim that we have equality with God. But one of the many problems with this statement is that we are still created by God, made to reflect him, not to be a perfect clone of him. Others might say, take this a step further, and say creator is less than the creation. They'll say, you know what, God's not doing his job. They'll say, God doesn't understand our culture. Now, they might not say clearly, hey, you know what, creation, we're greater than God. But when they say, you know what, this Bible is outdated, it doesn't apply to our culture, our culture knows better, they are saying creation greater than creator. But some will be even more bold, and they'll go as far as to say, you know what, God is dead. Just take a look through the pages of Scripture and see the many times that people mix up this equation. What happens to them? Time and time again, they're reminded that God is God, and they are not. That the creator is greater than his creation. Whether it's Pharaoh, who thought of himself as a supreme ruler, even as a god, or Goliath, who openly mocked God, or Nebuchadnezzar, who, who looked at his, his own kingdom and boasted about his own majesty. They were defeated, killed, humbled. Think about your own life. The times you thought yourself great and forgot God. The times you tried on your own to do what only you can do through the help of God. I find this happens to me pretty much every time I preach. Pretty much every time I'm getting ready to preach, God reminds me, hey, this is something you can't do on your own. You've got to be humble. You've got to submit to me. You guys witnessed it uh, if you were here in November when I preached. If you remember, I, I, I had a terrible sickness. I could barely talk without coughing. And somehow, during the whole week, I don't know how I even prepared a message, let alone got through the message without coughing. Actually, I do know how. It was God. And he was humbling me in that. But I think the clearest example is, uh, I used to, I was preparing a sermon years ago, and, and I had gone to Lancaster Bible College to, to their library to find a quiet place to prep and whatnot. And Lancaster Bible College Library is one of the largest, they boast as being one of the largest uh, Christian colleges, Christian resource, not colleges, libraries, um, in, at least on the eastern um, coast, but possibly in, in all of America. I don't know exactly where, where they're, they're ranking themselves now, but they've got a ton of resources. And I've got my computer in front of me, and it has uh, my, my Bible software, and it has a ton of resources. And I'm working on this sermon. I've got the passage, and I'm reading through it, and I'm trying to come up with a sermon, with an outline, something. Like, I know there's so much truth here, but what am I supposed to say? How do I piece this together? Surrounded by all of these resources, I've got nothing. I couldn't come up with anything, not even an outline. So I'm like, all right, you know what? I'm going to pack it up. I'm going to go home. Well, I don't know if it was that night or the next morning. I'm in the shower. And, and for those who don't know, you're not supposed to take computers or books in the shower. It doesn't work out well. So I've got no resources on me whatsoever. And all of a sudden, in my mind, God gives me the outline for my passage. And I'm like repeating it over and over and over. I'm writing it in the steam on the shower door just to try to remember what it is. So when I get out, I, I don't forget what God just gave me. But I was incredibly impacted by the fact that God showed up. He showed up in that moment to show me that I need to submit to him. 
And God is gracious to remind us to submit to him, to remind us that he is trustworthy, that we can depend on him, to remind us to submissively follow his plan for our lives and not our own plan or desires. We even need to submit to him as we let the truth that he created man in his image lay the foundation for how we view ourselves, for how we view ourselves. After we let this passage guide our approach to God, we need to let it shape how we view ourselves. Because often we have an improper view of ourselves. Some of us, we view ourselves too highly. And we need to learn from this last point that that we need to be worshiping God, not us. We need to be submissive to God. But some of us view ourselves too lowly. And we need to learn from this point what it means that we are made in the image of God. And what it means is that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Last week, Kyle spoke about creation. He discussed how God created everything. He even asked you to share with your neighbor uh, about something that you've seen, the most majestic thing you've seen in creation. And I'm sure you all had examples to choose from. Because God is an incredible artist. And we have the privilege of living in his art gallery. But more than that, we are his prized masterpiece. And we are an amazing masterpiece indeed. In fact, here are some incredible things about the body. You ready? First, we're amazingly contained. We're amazingly contained. We have 206 bones in our body. Yet, interestingly enough, babies actually have 300 bones when they're born. Interesting. You can look up how that changes. I'm not going to go into the science because, well, I'm not a scientist. Your small intestines, which are named not for, for, it's named for their diameter, not their length. If you were to take your small intestines and stretch them out, it would be 20 feet long. That's in here. Your blood vessels, you see like the veins in your arms and whatnot? If you took all of your blood vessels and lined them up end to end, you know how long that would go? You have about 60,000 miles worth of blood vessels contained in your body. And that was the conservative number I found. I found some that were higher, but that was the conservative number, just 60,000 miles. If you were to stretch them and keep going, going, you would wrap around the equator of the earth almost three times. And that's all contained inside your body. God made that. So you're amazingly contained. Another incredible thing about the body is your brain. Your brain is incredible. Scientists are still trying to discover exactly how the human brain works. It's incredibly complex. We know certain things about it. We know certain parts of the brain control certain functions. The brain, we also know it's made up of neurons, approximately 100 billion neurons. That's right, 100 billion neurons. And these neurons, they they send messages to our body to help our body function properly. So if you put your hand down on the stove, not realizing that somebody left the burner on, probably you because you forgot because, well, that happens to us, and you put your hand on that burner, immediately neurons are being sent to your brain that say, hey, this is hot. And your brain's sending neurons back that says, yeah, we should move. And so you pull your hand away. And it happens that quickly because your body just knows these things. And scientists still don't know exactly how that communication can happen so quickly. Thirdly, speaking of your hand, Everyone hold your hand up. You have 27 bones in each hand. 27 bones. You can start counting them if you want to, but don't. Um, You also have about 30 different muscles in your hand. Now, these muscles, they are all contained within the palm of your hand. 
Do you know that? There's no muscles in your fingers. I, I just learned that. I thought that's interesting. So when you move your fingers, your, your, your muscles in your hand are what's causing your fingers to move. So your fingers are, are essentially finger puppets. Yet, although we have these similarities, we each have unique elements to our hands. Look really closely at your finger. If you get it just right in the light, you see all those swirls? Your fingerprint? It's different. It's unique. Different than everyone else's. God made all of us with these incredible things. This is just three things. We could keep going. There's incredibly amazing things about the human body that God created. So our God who made all the amazing things in the world, he saved his greatest creation for last, the human. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, as David says in Psalm 139, 14. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. And just like David did there, we need to acknowledge that God made us as an amazing creature. If we spend our time focusing on how we're too tall or too short or too skinny or too large or our head's too big or our voice sounds funny or our feet are ugly or whatever it is we nitpick about ourselves, if we spend time nitpicking ourselves, we fail to see the amazing way that God created us. And when we criticize our body, we're criticizing our creator because he's the one who made this. But if we mix the submission that we as creation are to have We can say, God, you made me fearfully and wonderfully. I might not understand it. I might not see it, but I need to see it from your eyes because you're the expert here. It's like me when I get, when I'm, if I'm getting ready for like, usually I pick out my own clothes. Um, I want to be clear about that and none of you are surprised. Um, In fact, today I picked this shirt. I had two options that I was picking between and I chose this shirt because it didn't need ironed. So that's why I picked it. But Sometimes I ask my wife, I'm like, hey, could you help me? I, I, wanna, I need to wear something different or whatever for this function or that function. She'll lay something out for me. She'll tell me what to wear. And I'll put it on and I'll look myself in the mirror and I'll be like, really? This looks good? I don't know. This just doesn't, I don't think it looks good. But I know nothing about fashion. And my wife knows a lot more about fashion. So I trust her because she's more of an expert in this than I am. In the same way, God created you. He says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And if you don't believe you're fearfully and wonderfully made, if you have trouble understanding that, you need to trust that he said it. He knows it. He's the master creator. You've created nothing in your life like he has. So you need to trust him. He has made you fearfully and wonderfully. He's also made you special. We are special. Consider the account of creation. Six days. Six days of creating, one day of rest. On each day, we're told that God said, let there be or let this happen. He spoke and things were. Let there be light. Let the earth sprout vegetation. Let the waters swarm with creatures. But when it came to the creation of man, we see several differences. And the first is a clear change in even how he speaks. Then God said, let us make. Do you hear the difference? Not let there be man, but let us make man. God has the ability to speak into creation, but for man, he slowed down and took the time to make man. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, Moses zooms in a little bit further on this particular passage, on this particular element of the creation account. And he zooms in on how God created man. And in verse 7, he says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the same is true for how he created the first woman. In verses 21 through 22, 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken, the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. God intentionally created us. He took his time to create us. That's one way we're special. Another difference is he blessed us. He blessed us. Verse 28, it tells us that after God created man, he blessed them. We see nothing noted about this, about the sun, about the moon, the trees, the birds, or anything else in creation. He blessed us. And then thirdly, he entrusted us with his creation. God gave man dominion over the earth. He put us in charge of his masterpiece, of his creation. Any of you who ever have to put somebody in charge of something else, like maybe at a job or something, you've got to pick someone to be in charge, you know that you're not picking somebody who's a goof-off. You're picking somebody you can trust, somebody who's shown that they're competent. So when God sees us, he made us so that we would be competent, that we can do the work that he gave us to do. So when it comes to his creation, we're special. We're deliberately made. We're not an accident. We're blessed by God, and that's incredibly special. And we're entrusted with his creation. He sees us as worthy to care for all he has made. So when you look at yourself, don't see yourself as insignificant because God doesn't. He's the master creator, and he created you. He's an incredible judge of ability, and he chose for you to be a part of his plan. The call to care for all things, too, it was not the last call that God gave us. No, just as God started the work of creation and then entrusted us to continue carrying on his work, so too, after three years of ministry on earth, culminating in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned us again in Matthew 28 to continue the work he was doing, his ministry. He entrusted to us his church. He entrusted to us to take on his gospel to all nations to continue that ministry. And that leads us to the reality that God made man in his own image and allowed that to lay for us the foundation for how we treat others. It's so easy to be selfish when we come to Scripture. Sure, when we come to Scripture, we already know, yep, God's involved. God wrote it, so definitely God's involved. We consider God. But often we only focus that on how it pertains to us. What can I get out of this text? What does the Bible have here for me? But the Bible, it's God's word to all people. Truths like this one, they apply to more than just us and people that we see as like us. And this isn't a new problem either. It's the same problem the Jewish people had. You see, they were God's chosen people. But they viewed that as if they were the only people that God cared about. The reality is they were God's chosen people to go out to all people and tell them about him, to include them. Instead, They excluded them. And even within their own population, the Jewish people themselves, they created hierarchy, deeming some to be less significant than others. So when Jesus came, he lived his life in such a way to set them straight. Because he knew better than anyone what it means to be made in the image of God. Because he was there when God created man in his image. Because he is God. He knows exactly what it means. So we would be wise to look at Jesus' conduct to see how this truth should lay the foundation for how we treat others. We need to value them like Jesus does. 
We need to value them like Jesus does. People are God's, are made in God's image, his prized possession. He cares about them. He values them. And Jesus showed this in his life. Do a study sometime and just read through the gospels and write down all the different ways that God, that Jesus interacted with people. And you're going to see a few different things. You'll see moments when he was angry and direct. And these were typically with the religious leaders who were misrepresenting God to the people that they were entrusted to lead. But you'll also see him break down the cultural walls to show people their value by treating them with love and compassion. For instance, Jesus loved kids. Do you know that? Jesus loved kids. Now, that might sound strange. You might be like, okay, I mean, that's not too unusual. But you've got to put yourself in the shoes of the first century Jew. You see, children were insignificant in that day. Whereas today, it seems like we schedule our entire lives around our kids' schedules sometimes. In those days, kids were viewed simply as a burden and treated as a burden. In fact, unwanted children in the Roman world were simply abandoned on the side of the road to let what happened happen to them. Now that makes it make more sense if you understand culturally how people viewed kids to see why the disciples would would be so rude to these kids and shove them off. You see, people were bringing their kids to meet Jesus. But from the disciples' perspective, he had so many more important people to speak with and minister to. So the disciples, they were just doing their their job to make sure Jesus could do his important work with the important people. But that's not how Jesus viewed them. Because kids were not second-class citizens to him. They were made in the image of God. And he saw that and he knew that. So when the disciples are shooing them away, we read in Mark 10, verses 14 through 16, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in their arms and blessed them, laying hands on them. Do you see how Jesus valued children? Another example, and there's so many more, but this one I feel like it touches on, on a few different issues. A few different, it breaks down a few different cultural walls. And that's the woman at the well in John chapter 4. In this story, Jesus sits by a well in the heat of the day. And a woman calls to draw water and, and he asks her for a drink. Now, her response shows us how culturally unacceptable this was. John 4, 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John gives us a little extra insight. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You see, in those days, men, first off, didn't speak to women in public that they weren't related to. That just wasn't common. They wouldn't start this conversation. So let's strike one against this woman for why Jesus should never interact with her. Two, as John points out, Jews did not socialize with Samaritans. They were worse than second class. You know, they'd rather talk to kids than they would to Samaritans. And then moreover, as you read John chapter four, you learn there's a reason this woman's coming in the heat of the day as opposed to the morning with the other woman. She had been divorced and remarried multiple times and was living with a man she wasn't married to. Now, in our day, unfortunately, that's something that our culture is completely okay with. In that day, it was seen as the sin that it was, and a public sin at that. So, she was a woman, strike one. She was a Samaritan, strike two. And she was a public sinner, strike three. 
No reason Jesus should talk to her. And as you read John 4, you learn Jesus knew all three of these things about her. It was not from ignorance that he spoke to her. It was because he saw her as someone made in the image of God. Despite her sin, despite her gender, despite her social class, he valued her and through his conversation, he brought her hope she had never known. We need to value people like Jesus did because they are made in the image of God. Unfortunately, we aren't much different than the first century Jews. We treat others as less important. The reality that we're made in the image of God is a truth that's often used as an argument against abortion. The baby being formed in the womb is made in the image of God. The baby's not a mistake that needs eliminated. We might not, like the Romans, just abandon kids on the side of the road, but our culture will dismember children in the womb. How can they not see that that's a baby made by God in God's image? Now that's a message we've all heard and we can all get behind. But that's when we come to Scripture looking for conviction to point at other people. But when we come to Scripture, we need to be humble and say, God, how are you convicting me? We might not stand for abortion, but how many times do we forget that people are made in the image of God? We walk down the city streets and we see a homeless person who's clearly strung out. Do we show them value as one made in the image of God? We go to the grocery store and we see someone who's transgender. Do we show them value as one made in the image of God? When we see uh, two men or two women holding hands clearly in a homosexual relationship, do we show them value as ones who are made in the image of God? How would Jesus interact with them? How would he show them value? Would he avoid or ignore them? Or would he engage them to show them that they have value? Now, you might be saying, well, that's, that's entirely different. You know, yeah, okay, they're made in the image of God. I accept that 100%. But in their sin, they've rejected God. My question to you, haven't we all? Haven't we all in our sin rejected God? And didn't Jesus know that when he came? Didn't he know that about the woman at the well? Didn't he know that about the woman caught in adultery? Didn't he know that about the men who hung him on the cross? Who He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus knew that about us. When he called us from our miry pit and cleansed us to be made new. That's why when we consider people being made in the image of God and valuing them as Jesus did, we also need to point them back to God. We need to point them back to God. The God who created us in his image came to earth to set things right. He came to make a way for us to be in his image again. He came to wash us clean. Paul talks about this reality in Ephesians 4, verses 20 through 24, where he says, but that's not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created, listen to this, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In this passage, Paul points out that we all have an old self. We've all been corrupted through deceitful desires, deformed like this Plato. We were squished we were turned pink by sin. But we have an opportunity to be renewed, to be made new again because of the work of Jesus. 
to be made new, to be molded like clay back into the image of God, back into his true likeness. Jesus gives us the opportunity to take off the old self and instead put on the new self. And in that, to be made pure again. This is an opportunity that's not only available to us either. We must read this as being available to all people. Just as all people are made in the image of God, we know something that they need to know. They were made in the image of God. Sin has mutated them. But Jesus made a way to renew them back to being made in the image of God. Church, the reality that we were made in the image of God, it must spur us on. It must spur us on to worship God in submission. It must spur us on to view ourselves as wonderfully made, as special. And it must spur us on to value people as his image bearers and point them back to the image in which they were created so that they can be renewed. If you truly believe this to be true, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you believe that that is true, you must let these truths be lived out in your life for all to see. You must be committed to live out the image of God within you so that you reflect God to all people for his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you made us in, our image, in your image, God. And Lord, we know that we have been mutated by sin. We have been deformed by sin. But we know that we were still made to reflect you. And God, I pray that you will help us to reflect you. Help us, Lord, to worship you in true submission. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves not to cheapen your creation, but to see ourselves as fearfully and wonderfully made. To see ourselves as special. And God, help us to see other people with the same value that you see them as being made in your image. Lord, help us to point them back to you. God, forgive us for the times that we cheapen your image whether it's in how we approach you, how we view ourselves, or how we treat others. God, forgive us for those times and help us to be renewed into your image, into your likeness. It's in your name we pray.